2: DNA sequencing revolution is providing ever more data about genomes from all kinds of species, from humans to bacteria. But how do we make sense of it all? Who gets their hands on it and how do we use it to benefit patients?
0: Applications might be where you can make a decision on whether you have to give a child a heart transplant or a bone marrow transplant as well. So early diagnosis is critical we'll see more and more applications of whole genome sequencing and I think you know, it will really benefit patients.
2: We meet the scientists developing new computer tools to analyse and democratise global genomics, plus how your partner's genes affect you, assuming you're a mouse, and a shrunken gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for March 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk <laughs> Since the dawn of DNA sequencing technology, around 40 years ago, scientists have been figuring out how changes in DNA bring about changes in people. And as capacity has grown and costs have fallen, with the $100 genome looming on the horizon, clinical geneticists are trying to use genomic data to diagnose patients with genetic diseases. To make this complex task simpler, Cambridge-based company Congenica has developed an online tool called Sapientia, which guides clinicians through the process of linking a genetic variation in a patient to the condition that's affecting them. To find out what it can do for patients and their families, I spoke to former geneticist and now chief operating officer at Congenica, Nick Lynch.
0: So the problem that labs face now is that through the advent of whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, because of the massive amounts of data that are produced, it's actually quite difficult to do that um, in, a, in a single laboratory. You want to be able to scale up the analysis and use sophisticated bioinformatics. So we've, we've developed our software to address that issue and enable the clinical scientists to make a, a rapid diagnosis on the patient. So
2: you're saying, I've got this patient who's coming to me, I've got their DNA sequence... What is it that's wrong with them? What is it in their DNA that's making them ill?
0: That's right. So you have to look at all the different DNA sequence variants that occur in the patient compared with a reference sequence, a reference genome. Look at all those different variants. So, for example, in a, if you compare two whole genomes, there might be as many as 4 million sequence variants between two individuals. How on earth do you filter those 4 million down to a handful of potentially causative variants?
2: What sort of diseases and disorders are we talking about here?
0: So these are what we call um, rare inherited disorders. Most of these will manifest in children. Up to about 80% of all known rare diseases will, be, uh, will occur in children. And, for example, they may have features such as um, what we call developmental delay, when a child fails to meet their developmental milestones, inherited cardiac disorders, so maybe structural problems with the heart, There may be issues with inherited um, kidney disorders as well. So really the whole spectrum, um, any any organ system you can think of, there will be a genetic um, defect and a a range of uh, conditions that affect those organs caused by inherited disorders.
2: So with the software that you have, clinicians can go, OK, I think that this patient has this particular genetic change that is causing them this problem. What do they then do with that information? You know, can it can it bring them a cure?
0: Um, in most cases, it just brings a, the best outcome is a diagnosis. We are beginning to see more and more new therapies for patients with inherited rare diseases, and I think that's the the more information we accumulate about diagnosing these rare disease patients, more we'll understand about the biology. And there's a lot of patient adv- advocacy groups out there now who really want to, to look for new therapies. Um, So, for example, you might look at ways of repurposing existing drugs, uh, and there's quite a a few nice examples. And then in in the U.S., the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has worked very closely with a pharmaceutical company to develop a novel therapy for CF, so that's probably you know, a really good success story of, of developing new therapies for a rare disease.
2: What about the cases where there is no treatments? What good does the diagnosis do for those families?
0: So I think it's really important for, for all families to reach a diagnosis. If you talk to families, that they want to understand why their child has a particular disorder. So if that's due to an inherited um, condition, they can then use that information to help plan their their lives for the, that for their children so whether that be receiving medical support social support educational support and it also offers reproductive choices so again if uh, the mother wants to have a subsequent pregnancy then there are potentially options to ensure that that is a su- successful pregnancy unaffected pregnancy
2: so this kind of software where you can get the information you can get a diagnosis is that just useful for for children for adults? What sort of patient groups can this be used
0: for? It can be used in for any patient group, but what's what's really exciting is a, is a new application in the field of neonatal intensive care so this is where we see very, very poorly babies within you know, a few hours of birth, and if you're then able to do what we call a rapid whole genome sequence, you have the opportunity to make a diagnosis in a very short period of time, maybe within three to four days. And then in some cases, if you're able to have an early intervention, that can absolutely have a fantastic effect on the outcomes for, for some of those babies. So it might be something as simple as a vitamin supplement, and that can absolutely um, ensure that they are that their brains uh, develop in a normal way and they have all of their cognitive functions Whereas if you, if you miss that and maybe six months, nine months into life, it, it's, it, it may be irreversible damage to the child. So it's really, really important. Other applications might be where you can make a decision on whether you have to give a child a heart transplant or a bone marrow transplant as well. So early diagnosis is critical. Uh, and I think we're beginning to see, we'll, we'll see more and more applications of whole genome sequencing and I think you know, it'll, it will really benefit patients.
2: So say your program finds a genetic change and says, okay, it's this that's causing the disease. How do you know that for sure? What does a doctor do with that information? Do they just go, yep, computer says, ding, off we go?
0: It's really about building the body of evidence. So it's a bit like, you know, innocent until proven guilty. So you take your DNA sequence variants and you build the case for, is it really that the causal variant that causes that, that particular phenotype in that patient. So most of the time you're really looking to other, other reported examples. Has, has a patient like this been reported before? Have they got a mutation in the same gene? Have they got exactly the same mutation in the same gene? And so you, you're sort of looking for, for, say, for other examples to back that up. Ultimately what you want to be able to do is, is what we call functional validation so you can prove biologically... That, that, that the alteration in that particular gene has a causal effect, but in reality, if in, within a, a diagnostic clinical setting, that's, that's not possible. It's, it's, it's beyond the capability of, of the system, and it's expensive. Yeah, so really you're trying to build the evidence base, and then you're make a, you know, effectively making a subjective decision and saying, I think this particular DNA sequence variant causes the, the disorder in this patient.
2: That's Nick Lynch, Chief Operating Officer at Congenica. Another researcher developing tools to help make sense of the new wealth of genomic data is David Arnenson, Director of the Centre for Genomic Pathogen Surveillance at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute and also a faculty member at Imperial College London. He's developed a clever online platform called MicroReact, which allows anyone to put in DNA information about pathogens such as bacteria or viruses, tracking how they're spreading around the world and even working out what treatments they might be resistant to.
3: Well, I think one of the key challenges that has made its way into the media very strongly is um, antimicrobial resistance. So the emerging and increasing resistance to antibiotics for particular species of bacteria. Clearly what we need to do is to understand which strains are resistant, how they're acquiring resistant, and how and where they spread. And if we can try and identify and understand how they spread and where they're spreading, is it from humans to animals? Is it from animals to humans? Is it from different hosts? And do these hosts pass on between individuals, between countries, etc.? If we can try and understand the global spread of these antimicrobial-resistant bugs, we can try and track them and stop them spreading.
2: How are you trying to do that? What are some of the tools that you've got?
3: Well, we try and um, look at the use of um, whole genome sequencing. So if you can sample a bunch of bacteria and then you sequence their genomes, you can compare how similar the genomes are to each other, and you can use this to depict the relationships between them as a, as a family tree. And if we look at how similar, more similar genomes are to each other and whether those genomes are also resistant to particular antibiotics. We can then relate where those bacteria or who those bacteria have been infecting and whether we can use that information to understand who's been spreading to who.
2: So if you find related bacteria, say, in Paris and in Cairo, that might tell you that either the bacteria spread from Cairo to Paris or Paris to Cairo or something like that.
3: So these are some of the inferences that uh, that people make. What what we try and do is use um, what's known as bioinformatics, which is computational methods of um, looking at the sequence to compare how similar things are to each other. And once we've got these family trees, we can look at um, whether the more closely related isolates potentially come from either the same place or different locations. And we can use that information to make inferences about whether it could be a transmission from one country to another or one locale to another, And we could also look for the presence of genes or genomic signatures in the genomes. If those signatures are present, it gives us an indication that that strain might be resistant to a particular antibiotic or not. Being able to do this on a global scale means that we can try and look towards monitoring the emergence of antimicrobial resistance, and it's spread both locally, nationally and internationally. And if we can do that, then we can try and identify the emergence and then stop that spread.
2: How can we gather this kind of data how can we like gather and collect bacteria
3: around the world hospitals people coming into hospitals swabbing individuals most often if you go to a hospital and you have a bacterial infection then there will be some method to identify what species it is but you can also then do standard antimicrobial resistance tests and this involves giving the antibiotic to the bacteria and seeing how many of them are killed and that gives you an indication of whether you can use that antibiotic to treat a patient or not If we use whole genome sequencing, then we get a readout from the sequencer of a string of letters, A, C, T's and G's. And this is digital information, so it can be stored very easily in databases, and those databases can be made easily available via the internet, which means that anybody in the world essentially can get access to that information almost in real time. And we can then build on top of that intuitive interpretation to visualisation methods, so you can build trees online. You can add genomes from different countries to the same database and then we can enable anybody in the world to view the data as soon as it's produced. So we, we try and build methods on top of genomic sequence data that enable the information to be democratised, to be, make it um, universally accessible and available to anybody to identify whether they have more similar genome to ones that have been seen before.
2: You could imagine someone in the World Health Organization or here in our NHS or the CDC in America going, I want to know how this particular bacteria is spreading or how the flu virus is spreading this year or Zika virus. And you've got the visualisation tools that they could do that.
3: that that's, that's right. That's what we're trying to produce. We're trying to produce open access systems that enable the collation of sequence data from anywhere in the world and the availability of that sequence data to anybody with any expertise to try and understand what's going on with the data. So this is clearly applicable to, um, for example, in the UK, Public Health England, um, to understand the spread, and they're using genome sequencing currently to understand the spread of gastrointestinal infections and other bacteria. The CDC to understand the spread within the US, and of course, up to the level of the WHO. Genomic epidemiology has been used for understanding the spread of Ebola and Zika viruses, Mm. and there are um, moves and efforts to actually produce this kind of systems for exactly those kind of bugs.
2: What about if people, citizens, the general public, want to get involved because, you know, we must be covered with all sorts of bacteria and going around places where uh, there are bugs. Is there any way that people could gather bacteria and help with this effort of tracking?
3: So I think that would be lovely. What would be uh, ideal, what would be fantastic, if we can monitor what's going on in the healthy population? So if we all carry bacteria ourselves, be it in our gut or on our skin, classic example is Staph aureus that lots of us have on their skin and it doesn't cause disease until it gets inside, into the the blood, for example. If we could monitor what's going on with the healthy population, we could potentially use that information to spot the emergence of things that are potentially of greater risk to public health. So actually being able to swab yourself, send that off somewhere, have the genome sequenced, and for those background data to be available to anybody in the world to contextualize new information would be fantastic. What we need to do is to be giving genome sequences away for free.
2: I love the idea <laughs> of being a bacterial tourist and just, "Oh, I just go everywhere and, and swab while I 'm away."
3: That would, be, uh, that would be pretty cool. It's maybe not the best way to pitch a holiday to people, but that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able. To.
2: David Arnonson from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And if you have any germy genomes that you'd like to analyse, you can have a play with MicroReact at microreact.org. Last month saw the launch of the first ever so-called Beacon for Genomics focusing on India. Joining many other beacons around the globe, mostly focused in more developed countries, the Indian Beacon is an online portal allowing researchers all over the world to search for genetic variations specific to populations from the Indian subcontinent. Put simply, a beacon is a website through which scientists can ask institutions and organisations holding genomic data whether they have any data with a particular DNA variation in a specific place. All the data is anonymised, but it helps researchers to identify whether that institution is holding genetic data that might be useful to share to help discover more effective drugs or other healthcare interventions. The Indian beacon is being lit by genetic technology company Global Gene Corp and the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health – I spoke to Global Gene Corp CEO, Sumit Jamur, to discover why it's so important to shift focus towards Indian genetics.
1: The world spends about one trillion dollars on, on drugs every year. And of that, when you look at various studies, just over forty percent is deemed to be overall to be not effective. So what it means is we are spending just over four hundred billion dollars of money on drugs which do not have an effect. That creates a phenomenal amount of wastage out there. Technology and the fact that you can have genomic data and you can have data about every individual and the fact that we can tailor the treatment to them or in some cases we can, we can ward off certain risks in advance is, 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 is a phenomenal promise because that's what is needed uh, because we will have to find the saving from someplace and we will have to make things better. We realized that 60% of the world's population was contributing less than 5% of genomic data. And when we started out, that number was less than 1%. And that's a staggering number. Uh, when we looked at some a place like India, which is uh, one, at 1.3 billion people, has got 20% of the world's population, it contributed only about 0.2% of genomic data. And what we realized was, if you look at the power and possibility of genomics, particularly around precision medicine, uh, where you can change the health outcome for every individual and allow them to have a, not only a longer but a better quality life, that promise is incredible. And what that was lacking was genomic data to realise that promise. And that's what we've set out to achieve.
2: Sumit Jamur from Global Gene Corp, With more than a billion people living in India, not to mention the diaspora around the world, this kind of joined-up global genetic effort is only going to get more important in the future. And, as I discovered, the potential benefits are huge, according to Ewan Burney, director of the European Bioinformatics Institute in Cambridge and chair of the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health.
4: Well, it's really exciting. One of the reasons why is because it's become remarkably cheaper to sequence DNA and we can now use that in healthcare. Previously, we only did it for a few people in a research context – Now people can be sequenced because they're they're suspected of a particular genetic disease. But what that also means is we've got to to realise all the research benefits. We have to be able to share that data between now healthcare systems, not just between researchers, but between people in different countries with different healthcare rules and systems. And that's where the Global Alliance for Genomes and Health really comes in. What the Global Alliance aims to do is set up protocols, web protocols like the internet, for genomic data sharing, but responsible genomic data sharing, where the data will usually reside inside of the country of residence, under the legal protections in each country.
2: And are there issues with things like formatting? I mean, those of us will remember the problems with, oh, that's on a Mac, oh, that's on a PC, oh, I can't transfer these files. Are there those same problems there with DNA?
4: There are. Those are problems which uh, really are just about engineering and removing They do get in the way, but that's not the big problem. The bigger problem is having systems that work at the scale. This is petabyte, exabyte scale, so there's a physical scale of data problem. But there's also the interactions with the legal models present in every different country. Every country respects, in my experience, the value of research and the importance of sharing to create a better research uh, on human health. And they're positive about that. But when you're talking about whole populations, all of Denmark, all of the UK, all of France, you have to take a responsible attitude towards data sharing between these, and researchers will have to adapt to a system which still allows research, but in a responsible way of moving their code to the data sites rather than sharing data.
2: Ewan Bernie from the European Bioinformatics Institute. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, our gene of the month is all shriveled up. But first, regular Naked Genetics listeners should know by now that our genes help to determine our characteristics and influence our health and even happiness. Although, of course, they're not the whole story and the environment plays a role too. But did you know that your partner or housemate's genes might be having an impact as well? In January, Amelie Baud and her colleagues at the European Bioinformatics Institute published a study in the journal PLOS Genetics, showing that this is in fact the case, or at least it is for mice. We all know that uh,
5: people influence each other. Uh, There's nothing new here, but we'd like to know how this works. Uh, What we have found um, recently is that the genes of our partners
2: influence us indirectly. So... My partner's genes, my boyfriend's genes are having an impact on me. What's going on here? How does this work? What did you do and what did you find?
5: Yeah, so so I'll give you an example um, with my partner. Uh, Say, for example, that his genes um, tend to make him a very nice person who uh, also cooks well um, and, for example, smells good. This is going to help me, for example, on bad days or maybe generally going to make me happy. So indirectly, the genes of my partner affect my welfare and health. So this example is a bit simplistic, of course, but uh, really it shows that it's not only the behavior of our partners that matters. There's many other ways in which um, our partners can influence us, skills, for example, or chemical, physical, chemical traits. Um, like smell or good looks. Being big
2: and cuddly. Exactly.
5: There's really so many ways uh, in which people, um, our partners, can influence us. And, and what's really amazing is that we can capture this, we can measure this, and, and hopefully try understand how this works just by me- measuring the
2: genes of our partners. So this kind of boils down to the assumption that it's our genes that affect who we are and how we come out and what we're like and how we behave – but from what I understand, it's not quite as simple as, like, one gene, you come out like this. Of course not. It's not that simple.
5: So first of all, our genes only explain some part of how we behave, how we are, and so on. Our environment and life experiences and, and life habits really also plays a major role here. So the contribution of the, of our genetics is limited to begin with. And also it's not only one gene for the, for the traits that we are looking at here it's more likely many genes, tens, maybe hundreds of genes. So it is complicated.
2: So how do you go about starting to unpick this? What are you looking at and how do you start measuring the influence of someone's genes on their partner? So I have to say that we haven't looked at people yet. So
5: far, our research has been in laboratory mice. So in laboratory mice, you can uh, group mice in a cage. So you, you define who you choose Uh, which mouse interacts with uh, with which other mouse. So like a kind of mouse flat share, a mouse share. Exactly. Um, So first of all, you define the social partners, which are cage mates uh, in our case. And then you measure a number of traits of interest. So we were interested, for example, in a number of behaviours, including uh, anxiety, mood, uh, but also metabolic immune traits and also wound healing, for example. So you measure those traits uh, in the mice and then you also measure the genotypes or the genes of the mice. Um, and then you simply look for an association between traits of one mouse and genes of the cage mates.
2: And are you looking at specific genes or are you just saying, OK, this mouse has a genetic variation here and the mice that it's caged with are more anxious? Is it at that kind of level?
5: We have uh, quantified the overall effect of the genetic makeup of cage mates. We have not so far identified specific genes. Overall, the genes of cage mates uh, affect significantly and substantially a number of traits. And what we want to do next, as you uh, hinted, is to identify specific genes, because with specific genes, we can get clues on how things work, how uh, partners influence each other.
2: And does this work with mice that are related to each other, sort of brothers, sisters, siblings, uh, or does it work with mice that are completely unrelated, say like flat errors? We have evidence it works
5: uh, with both. So in our published study, uh, we had uh, both unrelated and related mice. And in both cases, we found that the genes of one mouse influenced the trait of another mouse.
2: Where does this go next? So you say you've done this in mice. Do you want to look in humans? I mean, that's that's going to be tricky. Obviously,
5: you want to look at humans. Um, it, it's really important to know whether this phenomenon ex, uh, extends to humans. We think it will because, uh, first of all, it's been observed in other species, uh, not only in mice, this is the first time, but also in uh, cattle by animal breeders who have been working on this for a while. So there's evidence that in different species, these effects exist. So we think uh, they might exist as well in humans. But obviously, we want to uh, find out with uh, experimental uh, evidence. Uh, so we are going to look at humans. Of course, we do not choose who's you know, interacting with who. So we first of all need to define who interacts with who. And one simple way to do that, for example, is to look at people who live together. And then we can do very similar analyses. Really, the models that we, the statistical models we use, can be can be used for human populations as well. And we definitely want to do that. Interpretation of
2: the results is going to be more tricky in humans uh, than it was in mice. So we're not going to have a genetic dating agency or a genetic flat share agency anytime soon. Not anytime soon. No, it's it's really difficult to
5: identify what people expect from their partners what they really want from their partners and this is complex uh, unconscious it changes over time so it would be really dangerous I think to try to use genetics to tell people you know to hang out together it's really not so much about the genetics the issue it's really about knowing exactly what we want what we expect from our partners
2: Emily Bod from the European Bioinformatics Institute. And the reference for her paper is on our website, nakedscientist.com slash genetics. It's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's shriveled. First described in a paper published in May 2016 by Karen Chang and her team at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, it's yet another of those fruit fly genes named after the appearance of unfortunate insects carrying a faulty version of the gene. In this case, male flies with faulty shriveled are infertile and also have testes that shrink and shrivel with age. The reason lies in the stem cells responsible for keeping them fuelled with sperm. Although a lot is known about the genes and molecules responsible for setting up these stem cells in the first place, much less is known about the way in which they're maintained over time. The healthy version of shriveled seems to play a vital part in that process, keeping male flies firing on all cylinders as they age. That's all for now. Next month, I'll be reporting back from the Genetic Society, British Society for Developmental Biology and British Society for Cell Biology joint meeting at the University of Warwick, exploring the very cutting edge of biology. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at scientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next month for another peek inside your jeans.